0: Once again, it is great to be here with you this week. This week in our morning sessions, we're talking about TULIP, which is a study on the Calvinistic doctrine. That TULIP, each letter there in that acronym stands for a particular aspect of Calvinist teaching. Yesterday, we talked about the T, which was total depravity. Today, we're going to look at the U, which is unconditional election. Election. Now, just as a reminder of what Calvinism is, Calvinism is not a specific church or a denomination or a religion. It's a set of beliefs. It's a set of teachings that um, influence how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, and, and specifically and ultimately, how we think about and view our salvation in Christ. And that's what a large portion of today's uh, session is going to be on, is this idea of how we come to Christ, how it is that that we are saved, and what Calvinism teaches about that, and what the Bible teaches about that. So you can see there at the bottom right corner, there's your five uh, different aspects of the teaching that we're going through this week. Total depravity was yesterday. I remind you that the Calvinist would teach that we are all totally depraved. We have inherited sin from Adam and Eve. uh, And every generation since then has inherited the disease of sin. We are all born with sin. And there is nothing that we can do to come to God. We cannot do good. We cannot seek Him. We cannot obey Him. The Calvinist will also teach that God has chosen special people to be saved. That's what we're going to talk about today. That Christ died for those special people... And that so his atonement wasn't for everyone... ...but was only for a limited group. That God sends his irresistible grace upon us... ...the Holy Spirit will come upon us... ...regenerate us... ...make us alive to Christ... ...in faith and in service to him... ...and that we will uh, persevere until the end... ...that he will not let anything take us away from the faith... ...and that we will uh, live forever with him. So that's a basic synopsis of the Calvinist teaching. Now I'll remind you as well why we're looking at this. And recall that... We want to, do, to know and to do what the Bible says, right? We want to know what the Bible teaches about things. We want to do what the Bible says to do. So we're instructed in the Scripture in 1 John 4 verse 1 to test the spirits. That's what we're doing this week. We're going to test this doctrine of Calvinism and see if it lines up with Scripture. Remember the Bereans who searched the Scriptures daily. Every day they were looking to make sure what they had heard was from the Bible. That's what we want to do. And then ultimately we want to be prepared if we have friends and relationships and other people that believe some of these Calvinist doctrines. We want to be able to talk to them and encourage them uh, to look at what the Bible says about some of these things. We also looked yesterday at the history of Calvinism. I'm not going to go all the way back through all of this, uh, but each of these uh, mornings we're going to take a little bit of a different uh, aspect of the history and just dive in and zoom in a little bit. And so I mentioned to you yesterday that some of these philosophies and teachings first came in uh, to the church's teachings in the 300s. ...by a man named Augustine. And so I want to zoom in on Augustine for just a second... ...and tell you a couple of things that I think are important for us to recognize... ...about this system and this this doctrine called Calvinism. Augustine grew up, his mother was a Christian, his father was not... His father was a pagan, member of a pagan religion. He studied in Carthage, which was a major city in North Africa. And at 22, he converted to a religion called Manichaeism. And he remained a member of that religion for nine years. Now, as a part of that religion, this was a form of Gnosticism. Now, I know Gnosticism is a big word, but Gnosticism was a religion in the Bible days. And John, actually in 1 John 4, that verse we read about testing the spirits, John is specifically talking about Gnostic teaching... And what the Gnostics believed and what, the, uh, what Augustine through his uh, conversion to Manichaeism believed is that ultimately God gives special divine knowledge to certain people. And that's how they're saved. And that everything fleshly and physical is sinful and evil and there's no good in it. And you can see some of the similarities and the parallels uh, to the total depravity concept that we talked about yesterday. Gnosticism, that... Pagan religion believed that the flesh was evil, the spirit was good... ...and that ultimately you needed divine knowledge or special knowledge from God to be saved. They divided, uh, specifically Manichaeism, divided their people into two classes. One was called the elect and one was called the hearers. And the hearers actually served the elect. The elect were the special class of people that had received the divine knowledge from God in that religion... And so as we think about that and we think about Augustine's history... ...this was the man who originally introduced some of these concepts... ...into Christian teaching overall. And we look at his background and what he came from. Now when he converted to Christianity... ...and eventually became a bishop in the Roman Catholic Church... ...for 26 years, he denied his former roots... ...and taught the conventional traditional Christian doctrine... ...but eventually he started going back... ...and incorporating some of his old philosophical beliefs... ...into his Christian teaching and writing. And so he started incorporating these ideas of the flesh being sinful and evil... ...and us being totally depraved... ...and us being specially elected and chosen by God. Now why am I telling you that? Because I think it's important as we consider today... ...whether Calvinism is biblical or not... ...to understand that the origin of how this stuff began... ...to be taught in Christian circles... ...was from a man who was a member of a false religion... ...who brought those ideas into Christianity... ...and then began teaching them as a part of biblical instruction. I think it's fair and important for us to recognize those origins... ...as we think about these doctrines that we're considering. Alright, so we talked about yesterday... ...the fundamental issue that we're talking about... ...with all of these these five areas of beliefs... ...is the, the idea of God's sovereignty... Is God sovereign? Yes, He is. Sovereign means He has ultimate authority and power. God is in control of everything. We are only here because of Him. We are only alive because of Him. We're only breathing because of Him. God ultimately is at the center of everything, right? But if God is truly sovereign, He has the ability to do whatever He chooses to do. And what we find in Scripture is that He has chosen to give mankind responsibility... With free will, we call that free will. The ability to choose to do good or to to do bad. The ability to choose whether we want to come to God or not. And I remind you that yesterday we talked about if you say that because God is sovereign, he therefore must literally himself control everything, you have limited the sovereignty of God by saying he must do something. A real sovereign can do whatever he wants. And what God has chosen to do is give us responsibility and give us free will. So let's dive into the U. Unconditional election. In Calvinism, unconditional election, which is also referred to as predestination, is the belief that before the world began, God elected or chose some individuals to be saved, not in response to any good they did or a willingness to believe that He foresaw in them, but according to His own will and pleasure." So that's a wordy definition. All it means is that God from before the foundations of the world... ...before anything was created... ...Calvinists will say God knew every single individual person... ...that he wanted to save and bring to heaven. And thereby we could also you know, make the, the point in the case... ...that if God knew every individual person... ...that he wanted to eventually bring to heaven... ...God also knew every single individual person... ...he did not want to bring to heaven... And that illustrates something that's uh, called single or double predestination. And if you study Calvinism... ...you'll find some differences in, in different um, Calvinist beliefs... ...on whether they believe in single or double predestination. Let me tell you what this means. Single predestination are Calvinists who will say... ...God has elected from before time certain individuals to save... ...but He has not elected certain individuals to damn or to condemn. He has simply passed over the other individuals and selected certain ones to be saved. So in other words, those who believe in single predestination want the benefits of God selecting certain people to be saved without attributing him selecting other people to be condemned and without putting that on him, which is is truly unfair to the doctrine. John Calvin taught double predestination, and we'll we'll show that in just a moment. Double predestination means God literally said, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell. He chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. He was fully aware of his decision. He didn't simply pass over certain people, but he purposed certain people to be saved and other people to be lost. John Calvin said this, By predestination we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends... ...we say that he has been predestined to life or to death. So John Calvin taught the double predestination concept... ...which is really the only one that makes sense... ...when you begin to actually believe this doctrine. If God is sovereignly controlling everything that ever happens... ...we are totally depraved so that none of us can come to God anyway... ...then God has through his sovereign control... ...decided that certain individuals will go to heaven and be saved... And certain individuals will not be saved and they will go to hell. And John Calvin taught that he purposed them, he preordained them, he created people for these ends... That God has created you for a particular purpose that he had in mind from before the end of the world which was to either send you to heaven or send you to hell. And there's nothing that you can do to change his, his election or his choice. That's the unconditional part of unconditional election. There are no conditions. There's not enough faith that you can have. There's not enough belief you can have. There's not enough obedience you can have. There's nothing that you can do. There's no condition on it. It's all God. It's all his purpose and will choosing certain people to go to heaven and certain people to go to hell. John Piper, we mentioned that he's a Reformed uh, Baptist pastor and writer and speaker. He said, unconditional election is God's free choice before creation, not based on foreseen faith, to to which traitors he will grant faith and repentance, pardoning them and adopting them into his everlasting family of joy. Uh, This foreseen faith, one of the, the alternatives to Calvinism historically... Uh, ...has been this idea that, well, God didn't choose before the foundation of the world... ...simply based on his own own pleasure, who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell... ...but rather he looked into the future, he saw which people would respond in faith... ...and those are the people that he chose. So he foresaw their faith and good works, therefore he chose them. Uh, Calvinism is saying, no, that's not the case, it has nothing to do with us... ...it's unconditional, absolutely God's choice... So let's run through the three primary arguments of unconditional election. God has elected certain individuals to be saved. And I want us to pay attention to two words there elected, the elect, okay, and we're going to look at that biblically, and individuals, okay. Calvinism teaches that God has elected or chosen individuals, certain people, not as a part of a group, but certain individuals to be saved. He said, although it's now sufficiently plain that God by his secret counsel chooses whom he will while he rejects others, his gratuitous election has only been partially explained until we come to the case of single individuals to whom God not only offers salvation but so assigns it, that the certainty of the result remains not dubious or suspended. God does not offer salvation to individuals, God assigns salvation to individuals. That's what John Calvin taught. And they'll use verses like Ephesians chapter 1. ...wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence... ...having made known unto us the mystery of his will... ...according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself... ...that in the dispensation of the fullness of times... ...he might gather together in one all things in Christ... ...both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him... ...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance... ...being predestinated according to the purpose of him... ...who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, it's a long scripture... I want you to recognize that it said the word predestinated or predestined two different times in there... ...referring to Christian people. The word predestined is in there, is in Scripture. It said that He has chosen us, that there are people that God has chosen. That's in Scripture. The Bible teaches that. But Calvinists will take this and they'll say, see, God has chosen certain individuals... ...to be saved from before the foundation of the world. He's predestined to their salvation... ...heaven and hell. And we're going to dig back into this verse... ...when we come back around in the biblical analysis. But I want us to remember the rules... ...that that I mentioned yesterday about interpreting text. First of all, we have to ask... ...is it specifically, explicitly saying... ...what the Calvinist position says it says... ...or are they taking one interpretation of it... ...and we need to dig deeper and look a little closer. Look at the context, look at what he's talking about. So we're going to come back to this verse. They will also use verse like Romans 8, 29, and 30 says for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom did he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also Glorified, And at first blush, when you read these verses in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 8, that sure sounds like God has predestined us towards a certain fate, towards salvation or not. That he's chosen us before the foundation of the world and predestined our our path. And so we're going to look at that and, and analyze it biblically. But I want us to recognize that's what Calvinism teaches is God has elected certain individuals to be saved. Number two, election is based on God's will not on conditions. The Westminster Confession of Faith from 1647, which was basically a, a group of reformed leaders uh, that got together and, and they put forth this confession that could be used in churches that believed these Calvinist doctrines. They could set that as their confession for, for membership. It says, Those of mankind that are predestined unto life God, before the foundation of the world was laid... ...according to His eternal and immutable purpose... ...and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will... ...hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory... ...out of His mere free grace and love... ...without any foresight of faith or good works... ...or perseverance in either of them... ...or any other thing in the creature... ...as conditions or causes moving Him thereunto... ...and all to the praise of His glorious grace. So this election of single individuals... ...is based totally on God's choice has nothing to do with what you might do in the future, what faith you might have, what obedience you might have. Nothing to do with that. And they'll use verses out of Romans. Now, just as a side note, Romans chapters 9 through 11 are huge in the Calvinist doctrine. And those, cha- those chapters and misunderstandings of what's being taught in those chapters are huge in this doctrine. And so here's a passage out of Romans 9 verses 10 through 13. And Paul is talking about an Old Testament example here to prove a New Testament point. He says, and not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now Calvinists will take this verse and they will say, See, even in the Old Testament, God chose specific individuals arbitrarily, not because of faith, not because of anything that they had done. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, God decided to love Jacob and to hate Esau. Before they were even born and did anything, God had chosen and picked Jacob and not Esau. He had extended his love to Jacob and his hate to Esau. And so we're going to evaluate that and, and look at it biblically and see... Uh, ...what that what that really means and what Paul is talking about there... ...but I want us to recognize that a Calvinist will take that... ...and they'll say, see, it wasn't based on anything Jacob did... ...or Esau didn't do or anything like that. It was before they were even born, God had already chosen... ...had already chosen to love one and hate the other. Romans 11, verse 5 and 6 says... "...even so then at this present time also there is a remnant... ...according to the election of grace... And if by grace, then is it no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. And he's talking about the remnant of Israel, of the ethnic Jews there... ...that were in Christ, that were, that were still saved, though many had been lost. But he's talking about grace and works here, and that it's not by works. And if we say it has anything to do with works, anything that we do, then it's not of grace... Okay, and that's, that's a big deal when they talk about God's grace... ...that if it's by grace, then it can have nothing to do with us. right? That's the unconditional part. It's not based on conditions. It's not of any type of works. It's because of grace. So God has elected certain individuals to be saved. It's based only on God's purpose and will... ...not on anything we might or might not do. And saving the elect is an expression of God's love and mercy. That's what a Calvinist will teach. R.C. Sproul said, God could have chosen not to save anyone... He has the power and authority to execute His righteous justice by saving nobody. In reality, He elects to save some, but not all. Those who are saved are beneficiaries of His sovereign grace and mercy. Those who are not saved are not victims of His cruelty or injustice. They are recipients of justice. No one receives punishment at the hand of God that they do not deserve. Now let's think through a couple of things on this quote. First of all, God could have chosen not to save every, uh, anyone. That references back to this idea of total depravity. We are all completely depraved. We all have an inability to seek God or to do anything good. If we all find ourselves in the same depraved condition... ...then we all deserve hell, is the logic, right? And so it is actually an expression of God's love and mercy... ...that He saves any of us, is what they will say. So the, the fact that He has chosen anyone to be saved... ...is love and His mercy... It's not cruelty or injustice toward the other people that he doesn't save. It's simply his love and mercy that he has chosen to save any of us. But recognize that he's making the point here that they're recipients of justice. That they deserve the punishment that they will get when they're not chosen. And yet, as we've seen in in the Calvinist belief of God's sovereignty, that God sovereignly controls everything that ever happens. Are the people really responsible for their sin? Or is God responsible for their sin? If God has meticulously preordained and foreordained everything that is to come to pass... ...and He controls everything and we have nothing to do with any of it... ...then God has preordained that I would be in sin. He has caused me to sin and to be in sin... ...and then has decided to punish me for it. And so the logic doesn't even make sense when you begin to dig in and look at that. They can't have it both ways. Either God controls everything and therefore is responsible for everything... ...and therefore God has decided to punish people for things they didn't do... ...and aren't responsible for or God is really not controlling everything. And so you have to be able to look at that and and begin to see the inconsistencies in those doctrines. But they will use verses like Romans 9, 14 through 16. This follows up right after the verses we read about Jacob and Esau. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, ...nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And the Calvinists will say... ...he chose Jacob to love... ...and Esau to hate before they were even born... ...not based on anything that he had done. And, but, and they will say... ...essentially what Paul is doing here is he's saying... ...now but before you object that that's unfair... ...remember that God is God. And God will have mercy on who he wants to have mercy on... ...he'll have compassion on who he wants to have compassion on... ...and those that he doesn't, he won't. And it's not about the person, it's about God. And so a Calvinist will present this and they'll say... "See." God chooses. It's all about Him. He'll have mercy on some and not on others. So, let's go to the Bible. And let's ask some questions. And let's, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. First of all, is there an elect that will be saved? Does the Bible talk about an elect? Absolutely. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering." There are many verses that talk about the elect talk about being chosen, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, we, we may hear that language when we think Calvinism, when we think about election, but th- it's not a Calvinist doctrine. Election is not a Calvinist doctrine. Election is in the Scriptures, but it's about what that election means. Who is that election talking about? Is it talking about certain individuals God has elected to save, or is it talking about something else? 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4 says... ...for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior... ...who will have all men to be saved... ...and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now how do we reconcile these ideas? The Calvinist view of the elect... ...is that God has chosen... ...for no reason that you had anything to do with... ...to save certain ones of you... ...and to condemn other ones of you. But yet the scripture teaches... ...not just here in 1 Timothy, but in many places... That God loves the world. That God desires that all men would be saved. That God wants every single one of us to be saved. And that's inconsistent with this idea that God chooses arbitrarily certain people to save and others not to save. So how do we reconcile that? Well, let's look at what the the elect is referring to. And I want to ask you this question ask you to evaluate it with me. Does election in the scripture refer to each individual or the church? And these are the concepts we're going to look at. When the Bible talks about the elect of God, is it talking about certain individuals that God has selected? Or is it talking about a grouping of individuals that are in Christ? Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. We read this just a moment ago. And this is the verse talking about uh, Jacob and, and Esau. That God chose Jacob and not Esau. That he loved Jacob and hated Esau. First of all, I'll remind you that the word hate... In the King James, many times means love less. does not actually mean hate. It means love less. So we'll put that side note in there. It's not saying that that God literally hated Esau... ...but that he had chosen Jacob. But I'm going to ask you this. Was God talking about Jacob and Esau there? Or was he talking about Israel and Edom? Now, he says the elder shall serve the younger. That Esau would serve Jacob. You know what we find in Scripture... We don't find Esau serving Jacob. In fact, we find Jacob running off in fear of Esau... ...and then we find Jacob, when he returns home... ...he bows down before Esau... In, ...in recompense to what he had done... ...with the birthright scandal and all of that... Right? ...if you remember your Old Testament history. Esau did not serve Jacob... ...but Edom, Esau's descendants... ...and nation that came from him... ...did serve Israel... You see, when God chose Jacob, he didn't choose Jacob the individual to save and send to heaven... ...and Esau the individual to condemn to hell. That's not what he was talking about. He chose Jacob's line, Jacob's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... ...and the nation that would come from them to be God's special chosen people. It was about the group. It was about the people. It was about the corporate election, not about Jacob the individual... In Genesis 25, we can see that very clearly. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb... ...and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels... ...and the one people shall be stronger than the other people... ...and the elder shall serve the younger. All we have to do is go back to Genesis 25 to see very clearly... ...that when God chose Jacob, it was not as an individual to send to heaven. He was choosing Jacob to be the bloodline. He was choosing the nation... ...that would come from Jacob to be his chosen people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6... ...that's exactly what the Bible says the Israelites were. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself... ...above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Did God elect the Israelites? Absolutely. He elected them. He chose them. He chose the Israelites to be his special people in the world... That group of people, now you can look at that and obviously there's, there's some, some differences between the Israelites uh, back in the Old Testament and, and us today. But we even see stories of, of Israelites who were killed or condemned or punished for things that they did wrong. We see other people like uh, Ruth and Rahab and people who were not Israelites who served God and had faith and were, were grafted in. But God chose the people, the group of people in the Old Testament. You know that's the same thing today. That's my position, that's my view... ...and that's what I'm presenting to you today... ...is my belief in the election of God... ...is that He's not talking about specific individuals... ...He's talking about a group of people... ...a group of people that God has chosen to save. Now who's a part of that group of people... ...is the next question that we're going to talk about in a moment... ...but notice 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9... ...where the Bible says, "...Ye are a chosen generation... ...a royal priesthood, a holy nation... ...a peculiar people... ...that you should show forth the praises of Him... ...who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Just as God chose a special people in the Old Testament... ...through which to show Himself to mankind and His will... ...He has chosen a special group of people in our day in the New Testament... ...that ultimately He will bring with Him to heaven into eternal life. And the church is that people. The church is that pe- peculiar people, that, that holy nation, that chosen generation... That's who Peter's talking to there. It's the church. And if you're a part of the church, you're a part of God's chosen elect group. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Let's go back to this passage. Now I told you Calvinists will use this passage because it has the word predestinate in there, right? And so it's real easy for them to point to this passage and say, see, predestination. It's right there in the verse. But I want you to consider with me as we think about this idea of the church being the elect of the church being the group of people that God has chosen. Whoever is a part of Christ's church, whoever is in Jesus Christ, is the elect, is the chosen, is the people that will receive eternal life. Let's read back through Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 11, and let's see if that makes sense with what that verse is saying. Because remember, we've also got to blend verses together. So it's not about saying, okay, a Calvinist will use this verse. It seems to indicate predestination. And then we can pull all of these verses and say, well, it indicates that we have choice. But it's about blending it together and seeing what makes sense. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him. In who? Who has he chosen us in? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hymn there. Jesus Christ is the one who we have to be in in order to be part of the chosen. He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated or predestined us unto the adoption of children. So we have been predestined as children of God by what or by who? ...by Jesus Christ. Not because God chose Timothy the individual... ...but because God, through Jesus Christ... ...and sending him as the gift to the world... ...enabled us to be in Christ... ...and to become children of God... ...by Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Not about you and about I. According to the good pleasure of his will... ...to the praise of the glory of his grace... ...wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Who's the beloved son of God? That's Jesus. Once again, it's about Jesus. He's made us accepted in Jesus. As long as we are in Jesus, we are accepted. As long as we are in Jesus, we are the chosen. As long as we are in Jesus, we're predestined to be the children of God. Let's keep reading. In whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. If we are in Jesus, we have redemption. If we are in Jesus, we have forgiveness. If we are in Jesus, we have received the riches of God's grace. If we are in Jesus. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence... ...having made known unto us the mystery of His will. What was His will? What's the mystery of His will? Was it that He chooses certain individuals to be saved? Or was it that He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross that all who believe and obey Him could be saved? That's the mystery of His will. And He's revealed that to us according to His good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one thing, in one, all things, where? Where is He gathering all things that He has chosen together? In Christ. He's gathering all things together. Both are in heaven and are in earth, even in Him, in Christ. In whom, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated or predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. All right. So we've reread verses 4 through 11, which is the same verses that a Calvinist will go to and they'll say, See, it says we're predestined. But when we look at the scriptural view of election, ...which is not the individual person to salvation... ...but it is the group of people that God has elected to save... ...it makes complete sense as we walk through that passage... ...that everything goes back to Jesus. If we're in Jesus, then we're part of the elect. If we're in Jesus, we have redemption and forgiveness. If we're in Jesus, then we're adopted as children of God. If we're in Jesus, that's what it's about. The question is not, has God chosen you individually to be saved? The question is, are you in Jesus... That's the question to answer. And then I would like to point out that the following two verses... ...that a lot of times you won't see a Calvinist or hear a Calvinist read... ...also add to this discussion. That we should be to the praise of His glory... ...who first trusted in Christ... ...in whom ye also trusted... ...after that ye heard the word of truth... ...the gospel of your salvation... ...in whom also after that ye believed... ...you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You know why a Calvinist doesn't go to the next two verses in that line of thought? Because it teaches that we have to do something to be in Jesus. You know what that says? That we have to trust in Jesus. And he's talking to people who have put their trust, their faith in Jesus. After what? After hearing the word of the truth. After hearing the gospel of your salvation... ...in whom also after you believed, after they believed the gospel, the word of God that they had heard... ...they became in Christ and were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This idea of unconditional election is completely unbiblical... ...because it teaches that God has arbitrarily decided which individuals to save and which ones not to. And that there's nothing that you and I need to do or can do as a part of being right or just before God... And the scriptures, in my opinion, clearly teach. And and when we put them all together, it melds them together to show that God has absolutely elected people to be saved. He has elected a group of people. Jesus called it His church in Matthew 16. I will build my church. The word church there is the word ecclesia. It means the called out. We read that verse about whom He did foreknow, He did predestine. I think I may have that next on the slide. Romans chapter 8. Whom he uh, did foreknow in verse 29... ...he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son... ...that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called... ...and whom he called, them he also justified... ...and whom he justified, them he also glorified. A Calvinist looks at that and they say... ...see, God through his foreknowledge has chosen... ...and predestined certain people to be saved. He's then called them out, justified them and glorified them. And it has nothing to do with the individual... But when we think about the scriptural teaching about election, we see... ...and we can apply our, our, our teaching that we've looked at thus far to this verse and see if it works. First of all, let's back up a verse. Who's he talking about here? In verse 28 of this passage, it says, "...we know that all things work together for good to them who love God." To them who are the called according to his purpose. In context, this passage is talking about people who love God. People who have chosen God. People who are seeking and obeying God. That's who he's talking about. And he says those people who have chosen God, who love God... ...he has predestined or predestinated to what? To salvation? To individual salvation? No, to be predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what all of us who love God... ...who choose God, that's what God has predestined us to be... ...is to come in Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ. I mentioned that word church there in Matthew 16... ...and many other places where it's used... ...is the word ecclesia, and it means the called out. You know, this this idea of calling we're going to talk about on Thursday... ...with the idea of irresistible grace... ...that God has, has sent a call, right, in Calvinism towards certain people. But the called out is the church... He has called us out of sin and into the body of Christ, into the elect, into the saved. And so as He has predestined those who love Him to be conformed to the image of His Son... ...He has called them out of the world. They are the called. He has justified them by the blood of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, He glorifies them in eternity and in salvation. And that's the teaching of the Scripture... Now let's move on. We have a couple more questions to answer. But I hope that makes sense. Election is biblical. But it's not the election of certain individuals to salvation. It's the election of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, are there conditions placed on being in the elect? Does God choose who the church is? Or do we have some responsibility of making sure that we're in the church? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. Make your calling and election sure. Think about the Calvinist standpoint on election. It's unconditional election. It's all God, 0% me. There's nothing I can do to make my election sure if the Calvinist teaching is correct here. But Peter's telling them specifically the verses before that to add to their faith, virtue, and a virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, temperance, and patience, and godliness, and so on and so forth. He's saying these are the things that you need to do to make your calling and election sure. That certainly sounds conditional to me. Certainly sounds like there's an expectation God has for us in order to be a part of the elect group. Do our free will decisions affect our eternal destination? Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19... ...we see uh, Moses there recording or giving the the words of, of God... ...to the people of Israel. He says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you... ...that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. We see in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament... ...God has presented choices before His people. Do good or do bad. Receive a blessing or receive a curse. It's on you to make the choice... Matthew 23 verse verse 37, Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem. And he's lamenting, he's weeping, he's lamenting about their disbelief and their hardened hearts towards God. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And ye would not... If unconditional election is true and God had the desire to gather the children of Israel together unto himself, then it would have nothing to do with the people in Jerusalem. They would have been gathered together as the will of God purposed. But he said, oh, I would have gathered my children from Jerusalem together, but what? But ye would not. Those people there in Jerusalem had themselves rejected God. And Jesus is weeping and lamenting about their disbelief. Now also another point to this would be why in the world would Jesus as God be sad about people that he had before the foundations of the world already preordained to hell? Why would he grieve about that? Why would he be sad about that? Why would he weep about their disbelief if he had caused it within them? And it simply doesn't make sense when you consider all of the doctrines together. Did God predetermine and ordain everything including sin and evil? If God is in control of everything, he's elected certain people to go to heaven, certain people to go to hell, then God has arranged even the fall of man in the garden. And John Calvin taught as much. John Calvin said, Nor ought it to seem absurd when I say that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and in him the ruin of his posterity, but also at his own pleasure arranged it. Calvinism is a doctrine that teaches that God arranged the fall of man. That God shows for Adam and Eve to fall. And as their definition of sovereign says, he is meticulously controlling everything. Adam and Eve had no part in it. Satan had no part in it. Nobody else has any responsibility in that if God arranged it as, at his own pleasure. Does God do that? Does God preordain everything including sin and evil? Well, first of all, James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If their definition of of the fall is right, then God tempted Adam and Eve to sin. James says, God doesn't tempt anyone. God wants us to do good things, to do righteous things. That's not the character of God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. God looked out at the world that was sinful before He sent uh, the, the flood to destroy the world. He said, He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. Why is God sad? If God arranged the fall of man, if it was God's will and he controls everything, and it was his will that the world fall and be in sin, then that should be pleasurable to him. He shouldn't be sad about it. But yet he was sad about it. Why was he sad about it? Not because he had chosen that, but because people had chosen that. He was sad and sorry that his creation, that he created good, had chosen with their free will to rebel against him. That's what grieved him. Sorry, let me go back. Luke 19 and verse 41, i mentioned he was lamenting over Jerusalem. Here's the passage in Luke 19 that shows us as he was looking at the city of Jerusalem, you know what Jesus did? He wept. Jesus shed tears over the disobedience of the people in Jerusalem. If God preordained everything, if he unconditionally elected certain people to be saved and certain people to go to hell, why would Jesus weep? That would be what God wanted. And yet Jesus wept. Did God predestine individuals to go to hell through no fault of their own? Romans 2, 6-11. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. See, he's setting forth a choice, good versus bad. Your choices matter. He's going to render to every man according to his deeds tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Look who the responsibility he places on. He says it's up to us to choose to do good things or bad things. And when we choose to do good things or bad things... ...we'll receive the just reward or punishment of our own deeds. And he ends that passage there with... ...for there is no respect of persons with God. God is not partial... God does not choose certain people above others. God does not see you as, the, as an individual as more important or more special than any other individual. And in fact, what we'll see and what I believe we see a lot of times with this Calvinist theology and doctrine is that it does, despite them saying it's all God and nothing to do with us, it elevates us. It makes us the special people God has chosen. It makes us the special elect. We're better than everybody else because God has chosen us. ...you're not any more special than anybody else. God loves you and He loves the world. God loves us all. He's not a respecter of persons. He's not partial. He's an impartial God. And finally, what is the purpose of good works and evangelism? If God has unconditionally elected certain people to be saved... ...and there's nothing they can do about it... ...there's nothing anyone else can do about it... ...and He's unconditionally elected certain other people to go to hell... ...and there's nothing they can do about it... ...what's the point... ...of evangelism? What's the point of good works? You know, the Bible says... ...Romans 1 verse 16... ...for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ... ...for it is the power of God unto salvation... ...to everyone that believeth... ...the Jew first and also to the Greek... There's a reason we preach the gospel. There's a reason we evangelize, reason we tell people about Jesus. It's because there's a foundational principle in place that says everyone has the opportunity to come to Him. Everyone has the opportunity to be in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you you are adopted as sons of God. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of God. If you are in Christ, everyone has that opportunity. But if not everyone has that opportunity, number one, there's nothing that our preaching is going to do to change anyone's destiny because God's already chosen it. And second, we're preaching a message of Jesus to people... ...who for all we know are the people God has condemned to hell. And how fair or good is that? That we would even offer them something that they cannot have. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father. Our good works be nothing if God's already chosen everything. But yet the Bible teaches that our good works can help to show Jesus and God to other people. I said finally. Now I'm going to say finally again. Are there some biblical examples that contradict unconditional election? This is the last one that I want to look at. There's many. There's a lot. I'm going to share two of them with you. Acts chapter 16. You remember the story of the Philippian jailer? Right? Uh, God sends an earthquake, Paul and Silas, they're bound in prison, now all the prisoners are unbound. The jailer thinks that they're going to escape, and so he's about to do himself harm. Paul says, don't do that. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, what's the Calvinist answer to that? What should be the Calvinist answer to that? Well, if God has chosen you, you'll be saved. There's nothing you can do, it's not about you. There's nothing you can do, but that's not what Paul said. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Then they preached the word of the Lord unto him and he and his whole household were baptized that day. Interesting that there were things that he needed to do in order to be a part of the elect... ...which would then be glorified, justified and glorified ultimately in eternity. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, we remember the story here as Peter's preaching to these thousands of Jews... And they respond in verse 37. They're convicted in the heart. They said, what must we do? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter's very clear. He didn't say some of you God has chosen to salvation and some of you he has chosen to condemnation. He said any one of you that decide to repent and to be baptized can have the forgiveness of sins. You know what happened later on? Verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day There were added unto them 3,000 souls. What were they added to? What does verse 47 say? Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to what? The church. Daily. Such as should be saved. Because saved people are a part of the church. The church is what it's about. The called out those who have been called out of the world, those who have chosen to be in Christ. If we are in Christ, then we are the elect. If we're in him, then we are saved. We do have redemption. We do have forgiveness. And we are ultimately on the path of heaven because we have chosen to come to Christ. We have chosen to believe in Jesus We have chosen to stop living lives of unrighteousness and sin. We have chosen to be baptized and have our sins washed away... ...and be forgiven of those sins and receive the Holy Spirit... ...and now be a part of the body of Christ of which He is the head. We are the body. We are His church. We are His people. We are His chosen elect group. And the greatest thing about that is that you can be too... And they can be too, and they can be too, and everybody else in this world can be too. Logical conclusions, if unconditional election is true, if God has the power to save or to give the opportunity for salvation to all, but he doesn't, then that's not very just or impartial of him. And yet the scripture teaches that he is not a partial God, not a respecter of persons. If God has unconditionally chosen some individuals to be saved, then he has also unconditionally chosen some individuals to be condemned, no matter what they may try to do. If God has predestined some to be saved and some to be lost... ...then He has chosen to punish sinners for a sinful nature... ...they are not responsible for, that God ultimately caused. If every person's salvation has been predetermined by God... ...without any regard to action they take... ...then evangelism, good works, and other acts of ministry are pointless. And if God controls and preordains everything that happens... ...then for His own glory and pleasure... ...God has created many people in this world... ...for the sole purpose of condemning them to everlasting hell. And those are the conclusions that you must draw if you believe this doctrine of unconditional election. I believe the message the Scripture teaches. We all have an opportunity to be saved. We all need to come to Jesus. We all can come to Jesus. We'll come to Jesus and we'll be a part of His church. We'll be a part of the elect in Scripture. I leave the thoughts with you this morning. If you're here and you're not a member of that body of Christ, if you've not obeyed the gospel, you have an opportunity right now to do what, what those folks we looked at were instructed to do, to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins, to be baptized and be forgiven of those things. If you're here and you're a member of the church, maybe you've been struggling, maybe you've not been living right, we certainly can pray for you and help you uh, in any way that you need as well. Won't you come to the front as we stand and sing our invitation song?